I got an action figure from the movie Virus, Kelly Foster. The best part of it is that my ass goes forward. You can spin it so I can be ass first, which is kind of fun. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. After rocketing to fame in John Carpenter's Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis appeared in early slashers like Prom Night and Terror Train, then went on to even greater success in the comedies Trading Places, A Fish Called Wanda, and Freaky Friday. Whether she plays it straight or plays it for laughs, Jamie Lee has a special quality that immediately puts audiences on her side. Her versatility continues to shine, most recently with great back-to-back performances in Knives Out, and the 2018 reboot of Halloween. I talked to Jamie Lee on the set of our upcoming film, Borderlands. You know that I have the original Halloween slate? No. I have what was Dean Cundy's porn slate. You know, he met John, film school, they all yeah, went USA. to school together. And obviously he was a DP, so right. he made, you know, some adult films. Right. That's, what, was, that was, that's what a lot of those DPs did. Right. And I have the slate where back in the day, like this, in a modern world, they don't do this, but back in the day, you would write the name on the tape and then put a new piece of tape over it. Mm-hmm. So the tape stack thick. was sort of that thick. It's broken. It's cracked. I'll send you a picture of it. I have the original Halloween slate, which I brought to the shooting of the 2018 movie, and used for the first shot that David Gordon Green used. Wow. And when we announced the movie, there was a picture of me, David, and a slate in my hands. That is the original Halloween slate. So I might need to get a Borderlands slate is all I'm saying. I'm just saying, I think you... They did make a very large one, which I almost... The large one, the giant one is great. I know, but you're just going to need to have that at home. It's about the size of this wall. And you're going to need to have it at home framed. It's a good one. It's a very good one. I'll let you discuss that with my wife. Um, welcome, Jamie Lee Curtis. I know. It's so nice to meet you. I know. Really, it's really... I've really been a fan for a long time. I'm very happy to be here with you. I'm so happy to be here, too. Like, here we are in Budapest on Borderlands, but obviously we're here to talk horror. For uh, well, horror. you're here to talk... <laughs> I'm here to talk horror. You're here to talk horror. So, I'm here to bounce ideas off you. Okay, so you bring the slate... From the original Halloween, I did. as like transferring the energy over, and boy, did it work! Yeah, I did. Tell me about what was it like playing Laurie Strode forty years later? 
living with this character and your involvement as a producer? Well, I'm not going to lie and say that I really had much of a job as a producer. I'm, I'm a cheerleader. I think I was a cheerleader on the movie. I'm a producer in the sense that I'm good with people, and there were a lot of people and a lot of personalities that needed people to be... Uh, well, you can be the bridge between that original gang, between I, the rights holders, bridge. between Blumhouse, I'm between the filmmakers. I'm a perfectly lovely like, person. Like, on set, you are the one. Anyone can go to you. You can sort of... Yes, that is... Mother the, the thing and get I, I was a bit of a godmother, if you will, but to the movie. But that's important, because, I'm, you know, I'm, a lot of these movies fall apart. You know, for years, don't get made because people can't get along, or they don't see how they're being unreasonable. So it was tricky to be able to merge the David Gordon Green, Danny McBride idea with the real ownership, which is Malik Akkad. You know, mm -hmm. Malik, of course, respected David and Danny, but really wanted to preserve his franchise the way that he who's carrying on for his father. Now, most people don't know that Mustafa Akkad, who was the original producer of Halloween, was killed at a wedding by a suicide bomber. So he and his daughter, Rima Akkad, were both killed at a wedding. I don't want to say where because I'm going to say it wrong. Wow, it was, I'm not going to say it was Beirut, but it was somewhere in the Middle East. They were attending a family wedding and there was a suicide bomb. And so Malik Akkad sort of took on his father's company. Mm -hmm. Malik was the one involved with H2O. By okay. then, Mustafa had died. And so Malik has carried his father's legacy for all these years. And that's a heavy thing to receive that kind of legacy and feel that you're the responsible party to protect and preserve it. And... He had a lot of pressure with H2O and he, over the years, with the Weinsteins and Dimension. Mm -hmm. And so I think any time new people were coming up with a new idea, Jason Blum at Blumhouse, Danny and David, he had to be the one preserving his father's legacy. So, and I am a good bridge between those between two. Between those parties. And that's what my job was, was just to be a good ambassador for both Mustafa Akkad's memory mm -hmm. and Malik and David and Danny and Jason. And I will tell you that the first person that I saw when I walked onto the set that first day of the Halloween 2018 movie was Malik Akkad. And he looked at me and I looked at him and we two of us just burst into burst tears. tears. Just, we just walked toward each other kind of like that scene in Reds where Diane Keaton and, mm -hmm. and Warren Beatty are meeting at the train station. They're shaking their head and crying. That's what happened. With and him. had you seen him since Halloween H2O? Only at a charity event that he created a foundation called the Scare, S-Care oh, Foundation for Homeless Youth in Los Angeles, partnered partly with Children's Hospital. How did you all like the, the new conception of the story and what it was going to be and revisiting after these years? You know, years? for me, it was simply this. I got a call from Jake Gyllenhaal, who had just made Stronger with David. Mm -hmm. I was in Idaho, where I live. The phone rang. And he said, look, my friend David wants to talk to you about a Halloween movie. And I said, oh, okay. And I got on the phone with David. And, you know, Had you seen David Gordon Green's films? I had seen Stronger. But I hadn't seen anything George else. Washington nope. or the it was early fantastic. Ones. Yeah. Well, the financier of George Washington actually financed my first film, Cabin Fever, and the movie he financed right before was George was Washington. George Washington. Right. And we both shot in the same town of High Point, right, when okay. him and Danny were at North Carolina School at the Arts. And they like all right met. around the same time. And, you time. know, there was a lot of similarity 
anyway, he called and said, you know, I've written a movie and I'd like you to read it. And he started to tell me, I said, don't say a word. Just send it to me. I'll read it. I'll call you in tomorrow morning. And I read it. I called him in the morning and said, okay, that quickly. And it was that? It honored all of it. It honored the trauma. It honored the thing that I've always wondered about, about these movies, which is what happens to these people yeah. afterwards. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens, but then when the next day comes along, what happens to the people that survived? So I loved the idea that that was obviously it. Look, if you look at H2O, the reason H2O happened is because I went to John and Deborah and said, look, we're all still in show business. It's rare to take the same creative team mm -hmm. and make a movie 20 years later reprising the same characters. Yeah, it's basically and, like a Michael Apted seven Well, it's up. sort of seven up, seven but, up it's, but it's sort of 20, 20 years year later. installments. And I went to John and Deborah. Unfortunately, John dropped out as the director. Deborah ended up dropping out as producer, and I ended up in the H2O. But my only thing was, if you see the movie, if you remember the movie, mm -hmm. Lori has changed her name. She's on the run. You know, she's taken her kid and left. But she's an alcoholic. Because nobody gets through that without some trauma. That was my way of making sure that there was authenticity of trauma. Were you the one who brought Kevin Williamson into H2O? No, 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 they did. They had already planned that. And ultimately it was supposed to be a little bit about trauma and on some level sort of ending it. It's too long of a story we could spend. No, I mean, Brian Fuller is making a documentary on queer horror and Kevin Williamson and Halloween H2O is a big part of it. And Kevin credits you as getting him through his tough teenage years dealing with homosexuality. And are you aware that there's a very, very large queer fan base that identify with Laurie as a survivor of trauma, relating it to their own experiences of what it was like growing up gay? Well, I don't think trauma is gender specific. I think trauma is universal. And I'm not surprised at all that that would be a person who someone would look to for some sense of self-acceptance. And, you know, it's lovely to be able to represent that. But that was the H2O vibe for me. The thing that drove me was that she's on the run, but she's suffering. And her decision to sort of end it shut the gate, turn back, go, it's you or me. Your character, Laurie Strode, even H2O, the Halloween movies, there is something about this thing that keeps coming for you and coming for you, and you're like, I'm going to beat it, I'm going to beat it. It's real, being the ability to survive It has trauma. to be real. You see, I think it's from the beginning, the reason Halloween was so wonderful, because it was real. Those girls were real. I know. The John way they wanted it to be just real people in the real places. The dialogue you guys have about boys. All the boys and the thing and the thing. And poor Lori scared another one. I mean, this is what people sound like. Well, it was So like that when the bad guy shows up, you actually care. And ultimately in H2O, that was my goal. My goal was to honor the fact that not only was I still alive, but I was in trauma. And by the way, I never said this anywhere. I also wasn't sober. And I got sober after H2O. So it's interesting that I understood that that secret trauma was probably something that I could relate to as an actor. Wow. And, it, you know, that was driven all by me. All of that part of Lori's art. And the late. truth is, I probably produced H2O more than I did 
2018, but I didn't get credited you didn't get the as credit. a producer at the time because I didn't know to demand it. See, now I would go back and go, oh, hello, you, my name right there. Because, of course, I went there. I, it was my You were the idea. one who did it. You I, brought it. I you invited them to lunch. And you John, brought the whole Deborah, thing. how about the three of us? We make a movie 20 years later. And that was probably... With the whole conception of her as a survivor, everything. As a survivor, as an alcoholic who was on the run. And what happens if you make the decision that life on the run is not life? Because mm -hmm. freedom only comes from truth. Mm -hmm. So let's create a scenario where the bad guy shows up, but instead of running, she locks the gate, throws away the key and says, let's, do let's go. Let's dance. You or me. Because if you kill me, I'm going to die free. And if I kill you, I'm ending your prison that you've put me in. And that, to me, had an emotional undercurrent for that movie, which worked. As you saw, she kills, ultimately, an innocent person because mm -hmm. Michael ultimately became the ambulance driver. And the next movie I was in simply because that was my deal with them, which is if we're going to kill Michael in H2O and the audience is going to think Michael is dead and I think he's dead, I will make the movie. Mm -hmm. But you're then going to need to put me in the next movie. Lori is now going to have to deal with the fact that she's killed an innocent person. She's in an institution and you're going to have to kill her because I'm not going to jerk off an audience anymore. Mm -hmm. I've done it, 20 years, end it. But if we can't end it because it's a franchise, I understand, but you have to kill me because then I don't have to deal with this anymore. And yet here we are, and Hall yet, and yet. Halloween 2018. Right, because, production. because what David and Danny did is they just decided to erase everything except Halloween 1 and Halloween 2. And audiences seemed really... Ready for that? Oh, actually, not even Halloween two. Not even Halloween two, because that Halloween was the sister. One. Yeah, because that was the brother sister reveal. It, that well, doesn't work. It doesn't, that doesn't work. make any and, sense. And, of course. What did David Gordon Green and Danny McBride come up with? What was the story of Halloween okay, twenty eighteen? So I'm going to stop you for one thing, though because we're in the horror world. And I mentioned this to you the other day, and I think your fans will be very happy to know this. I, I may have said this somewhere in the world because I'm near death, and I'm sure I've said many things over and over again. But, but you know what I mean. When I was 12 years old, I was precocious. What? Flirty. What? Me? 12? Flirty at Not 12? Even you. Not I don't know who you're talking about. You're making a story. It's a story about someone else. Seriously. And, you know, I'm, I was funny. Anyway, Ray Stark produced The Exorcist, was a very good friend of my family. And I used to see Ray Stark and he loved me because mm -hmm. I was 12 and me. Yeah. And he asked my mother if she would let me audition for The Exorcist. And, of course, my mother was like, no. In a word? No. In a word, no. So I heard that he had asked, but she said no. But were you into horror then? Were no, cool? I'm no. not into horror today, Eli Roth. My point is, so they made the movie, but the house that my parents bought 
in Beverly Hills for about two years. We lived there, had a projection thing. And for my 15th birthday, we screened The Exorcist. And I had like boys and girls over and we watched The Exorcist. It freaked me out so badly that the next day at school, my friends would run down the hall chasing me because they would come behind me and go like this. Demi, 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 why you do this to me? Demi, Demi, why, why you do this? And it freaked me out so bad that my 1972 Mercury Capri had a personalized license plate of, wait for it, Demi. That's how That's freaked, how freaked out, out you are. I am by horror movies that my first car, the license plate, was Demi. Just saying. So there, just so you know. You'd think that you would avoid an exorcist-themed license plate to not no, have to look it at was, it No, it was time. such a perfect thing to be able to say how much I didn't like being frightened. Right. So, duh. You know, some, I'm sure somebody will go. The, like, the original house, the director, Michael Doherty, bought the house in Pasadena, and he stands in the window. Oh. He bought it. I, he why? It. Okay, don't even. So anyway, that's just a little bit of a little amuse-bouche for you horror fans. Tell me the, the plot of Halloween 2018. 2018 is 40 years, 40, 40 years later. Lori is living by herself. She had a child. Obviously, the daughter was taken from her. Lori was a very unstable person. She had trouble with the law. She had trouble fitting in. Obviously, she was very frightened, paranoid person. She has a fractured relationship with her daughter. She now has a granddaughter. They live in the town. And Lori lives in a compound. She's a survivalist. Mm-hmm. She's a prepper, as, they, as mm-hmm. they're called. You know, she lives in the woods. She is a sure shot, practices every day on these dummies. And she's an end of days prepper, ready for Michael Myers, because she knows Michael's going to come back. She is highly aware that Michael has been sentenced to go to this maximum, at one of those super max mm-hmm. prisons, that he's being transferred And she is going to make sure he gets on that bus, that it goes off to the supermax. And only then, maybe, maybe would she even begin to deal with her trauma. Maybe. We'll never know. And, of course, he commandeers the bus through Mm -hmm. acts of incredible violence and he escapes. So now you've set up a woman who's been waiting and he comes back. So it's a... Well, what this movie did beautifully... It's so beautiful, by the way. It's, it's so Gordon beautiful. does make beautiful movies. But I mean, just the opening sequence at the, the mental pr- yeah, hospital. The prison. It's amazing. The prison with the checkerboard floor and just the shots, the beautiful way those other people out on the yard, mm-hmm. the dog barking, that strange man kind of having a fit... And no, it's all oh, the kind of beauty that he puts in but, George Washington and Snow Angels applied to beautifully this type of a, shot, just beautiful, type of a film. and does it effortlessly. By the way, mm-hmm. does it without any of the crazy meticulousness of it. He's just like, yeah, let's do that. He's very free, very fun, mm-hmm. very um, inventive. Well, the wonder. This movie finally gave us that moment of Michael Myers. Going around on oh, Halloween. In the house. Oh, just no, no, no. walking it's through the house, walking around the neighborhood, children bumping into spectacular. him. Spectacular. 
and the nurse and the car. Incredible. And the getting a thing. And, oh, I left my keys and then going and then coming back. And, oh, I, they were in my purse. And I, it's spectacular. It's spectacular. But the setup of the journalists. So what was genius about I felt that what Michael and Danny did mm -hmm. is they have to give the story. You have to tell the story. Who's going to tell the story better than tabloid journalists, Journalist. English? Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, all my friends across the pond. Don't be mad. But English, smarmy English journalists who are pretending to be really interested in her journey, in her story. At one point, mm -hmm. she says, my, like, my story? What do you, what do you, who are you people? And you know, well, you know, all of your life and your daughter and your failed marriages. And she, her only focus is Michael Myers and a little money that they're giving her. But it's spectacular that he created them to both tell the story to the audience, get into the hospital through them, mm -hmm. the whole thing with the guy taunting Michael with the mm -hmm. mask. I mean, it's Amazing. brilliant. Brilliant. And then their demise in that bathroom. It's, it's just spectacular. You want to see them get it. You have to have a few people that you really want but to see and, Michael and, just but an English rip apart. English journalists. Yeah. It's, it's, you really want to see those people get it. Yes. <laughs> because they're horrible people. They're horrible people. Last thing in the world I thought I would do is another Halloween movie. Last thing. It was never on my radar. It was never going to happen. But there is quite the courtesance, not that you ever went away, but to have Halloween and Knives Out back to back. And half the people know you, if you watch horror movies, know you from Halloween. And otherwise they would know you from comedies and action movies. I mean, you're iconic in, I mean, you're iconic for a reason, but in multiple Genres. I mean, what a thing to have that happen at this point. We're just out of no. You don't think you're going to do that movie, and now all of a sudden it becomes bigger and than any of them. And now I'm in Budapest with you, motherfucker. I mean, like seriously, the idea of this wonderful set of opportunities that I've had in the last five years—totally out of the blue. Last thing I ever thought would happen, and that movie was so spectacular. Were you surprised that it resonated the way that it was such a cultural milestone? That it was as big as it well, was? Well, what was? it what David and Danny have done, unbeknownst to them at the time, was they had some sense that a generation of women were going to start telling the truth about their experiences being oppressed either physically, mm -hmm. sexually, emotionally, by men with the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And they did not know that ahead of time. And yet, as we were launching the 2018 movie, it was right in the center of the Me Too movement. And so women taking power and speaking truth to power and voicing their experiences as trauma victims was echoing all over the world when mm -hmm. we released that movie, a movie about a woman taking power from her trauma against her oppressor. So I think there was this spectacular confluence of life, 
and evolution of women and Laurie Strode coming to grips with Michael Myers. It happened to be that. And what's spectacular is that they created a trilogy, mm-hmm. right? So they, Danny and David, from the beginning, Halloween, Halloween Kills, Halloween Ends, three movies. And the second movie is about mob violence, which we are now releasing in 2021 because of a year delay from COVID. And we have just, in America, watched a mob descend on January 6th with nooses and stun guns and members of Congress in the building. And we all watched it on TV. And <laughs> in, uh, on October 19th, 2021, we're going to watch a movie about a mob descending together. And that's another moment where Danny and David had some idea that people were going to take matters into their own hands. Mm-hmm. Well, the best horror movies, often you can't even see it until there's a little bit of distance. But that's like, what I'm saying. And the, but now I would never have, I don't think anyone that I've read has tied the success of Halloween 2018 to the Me Too movement until I've just heard you say, but of course it makes sense. It's, it's, that's absolutely what it's what, trauma. What it's about. But you also brought that to Laurie. I mean, when you're reading the script, I'm sure you had input on who Laurie is, what she's there, what, or was that all in the script? Those guys had it. It's basically, it was all there. I mean, fractured relationship, mm-hmm. trying to work your way back, beautiful connection between the granddaughter. I'm going to tell you a story. This I have told before, but I don't think I've told it with you. I certainly didn't tell it with you. Here's what happened, which has changed my life. Seriously. So the entire movie we made and we're in Charleston. Mm -hmm. I'm there alone without my family. I have my little dog, you know, making movies lonely. It was emotionally, you know, it was, Lori was in in a very fragile state. And so I was in a very fragile state for the shoot. The last day of the shoot for me is the day of Lori watching Michael get on the bus when he's gonna be sent off to the supermax. Mm-hmm. And there's no dialogue. It's written in the script. Lori is in her truck with a gun and alcohol. And 20 years or 40 years of memories and feelings are happening to her. That's all it says, nothing else. Not a word, no dialogue. The last shot of the movie for me as an actor, I'm going home the next day, Mm -hmm. was a shot of me in the truck at night by a chain link fence by some fake building out in the middle of nowhere in Charleston. And, you know, showed up to work. I didn't have to rehearse anything. They were just lighting the shots. Obviously, they had a bunch of toys to play with. And I prepared, got dressed, did my preparation, they said, okay, they're ready. And as I walked to the set, every single member of the crew, what we didn't do on Borderlands because I showed up halfway through is normally I like people to wear name tags because I don't get to know anybody. Everybody knows me and it's a shitty feeling. Yeah. So 
whoever it is, I ask for the first couple weeks, everybody wear a name tag says, hi, my name is Eli, I'm the director. Mm -hmm. And so for the first two weeks, we had had name tags. When I approached the set late at night, out in the middle of nowhere, a chain link fence and a building and my truck, every member of the crew was wearing a name tag that said, we are Laurie Strode. Wow. And nobody said a word. And the entire crew stood there in solidarity of what they knew I was now going to have to go act. They stood in silent solidarity with me. And I looked at every single one of them. And they just looked at me as I walked by, all of them wearing an I am Laurie Strode. We are Laurie Strode. And I got in that truck and David just started rolling. And for 20 minutes, I let 40 years go. Wow. It's in the movie 10 seconds. But for 20 minutes, with all the different toys, I just sat in that truck and relived 40 years. And that was my final shot on the movie. And it was the gift of this group of people who understood because mm -hmm. they had just spent eight weeks with me telling the story. And they knew that this moment was important. It's beautiful. It was spectacular. In the wake of Halloween, there was a whole wave of Jamie Lee Curtis horror films. No, there wasn't a wave. There were three. Oh, for me, it was a wave. There were three. Oh, no, it's a wave. There were three. Three makes a wave. Let's talk about Terror Train. Terror Train is a bunch of college kids, New Year's Eve, taking a train for a party on the train. And a bad guy shows up. What are your memories of it, of shooting at night, shooting with John Alcott? Now, John Alcott shot Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, and now so Terror John Train. So John Alcott, we shot in a practical train the entire movie. We shot all nights in Montreal in the winter. The only place we could house an entire train with many cars was a train packing warehouse with a, you know, aluminum warehouse built around tracks so they can bring trains in, load them, and then open the door at the end and then the train goes out. But it was a train packing warehouse that worked until midnight every night. So we had no clean sound from six o'clock at night until 12 midnight. So anything we recorded on that time had to be re-recorded in soundproof rooms for six hours. So you'd shoot and then ADR the scene right away. We would go straight into a little soundproof room and basically just loop it, do three takes, of just doing all the dialogue three times and then they would lay that in. And still we had to obviously do dialogue replacement later. And then from midnight until six, we had clean sound, but it was all nights freezing cold. And if you weren't in the scene, like here we are in a little set, where everybody else is sitting was a frigid, dark, 
brutally cold warehouse where people were just freezing. There were no heaters. It was horrible. So you're 19 years old, 20 years old? 20. Halloween has come out. It's a huge hit. Yes. And now you're freezing in a warehouse no, in No, Halloween came out. It was a huge hit. It wasn't a huge hit. It grew to be a hit. I got no other jobs. Halloween came out. I got no jobs. The no. two jobs I got were an episode of Charlie's Angels, where I play a professional golfer and Cheryl Ladd wrestles an alligator in a stream. As she does. Because the bridge we're walking on collapses. And then I did an episode of The Love Boat with Gavin McLeod, who died yesterday. I didn't know Gavin McLeod died. He died yesterday at 90. And I did an episode of Love Boat, Wait For It, with, wait for it, Janet Lee, where I'm on my honeymoon and my mother and father, I think it's Norman Fell and Janet Lee, come on my honeymoon on the love boat. That's after having the like the movie that changes that movies, the most successful independent movie, the biggest movie. But it wasn't movie. at the time the most successful independent movie because that took time. It to, took time back then. So after Halloween came out, it started to gain a little bit of traction. I got no jobs. I did Charlie's Angels and Love Boat. And then John wrote the part in The Fog for me. And wait for it, my mother, Janet Lee, to be in The Fog because mm -hmm. he felt weird that the movie was successful and, and I wasn't getting any work. So he wrote the part in The Fog. We went up to Northern California, made The Fog. And then I got Prom Night first, mm -hmm. which was shot in Toronto. Yep, great Canadian slasher film, Paul Lynch. Yes, with Leslie, Leslie Nielsen mm -hmm. with his fart machine. Now explain to me the Leslie Nielsen fart machine. Before so Leslie Nielsen train. had a fart machine in his pocket at all times. Not a human, not like he's a fart machine. He actually brought one. He brings, it was a Which little- Which is pretty advanced technology for like 1980. It was something he could replicate fart noises and he would do so all the time, including in funeral scenes when you're all supposed to be crying. And he would just have this ridiculous thing where he would let farts go, which is cute and funny once. Let me just say- By well, the end of the show, it didn't. Well, no, because you're trying to, again, make we're trying it. to make something happen. Were you, did you feel like you I were did not like that. relegated to being in these movies? No, nope. are you kidding? I was not paid Halloween. I was not paid more than $8,000, $2,000 a week. The Fog, I probably got paid $25,000, maybe, maybe at the time. And Prom Night, I think, it was the first time I had made $50,000. And I think Terror Train, it might have been seventy-five dollars or $100,000. For me, at 21, that was now I'm making money. Yeah. So it had nothing to do with the content. It had nothing to do with horror. had nothing to do with some idea of like, oh, I'm going to do that now. It was, I am being offered this amount of money. For this movie. For this movie, I will go take it. And what are your memories of Roger Spottiswood and Ben Johnson? Roger Spottiswood was lovely. Ben Johnson was lovely. John Alcott in the train wired all of the practical lights on the train to a light board, which is very common now, which was not common then. And he would light the scene by dials because it was just dialing it up. I do remember that. John was lovely. Roger Spottiswood was fine. Again, 
it's a bunch of people running around. You know, it's you're running around. I have no real connection with either one of them. It's interesting that Fox they didn't even say from the start of Halloween. It was like oh Ben Johnson and Terror Train. No, I understand. Yeah, but doesn't that seem? That's why I'm saying for me it was just money. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's not bullshit people. For me, it was Mm -hmm. money. It was I am being asked to go to Canada and make a movie for fifty thousand dollars at the age of 20 or 21 got whatever. it so so ben johnson being billed as the star of the film and then not it didn't really matter I, I, didn't matter I, at all i, I, I forgot ben johnson was in it he's lovely i remember he was a sweet guy by the way shot all night now i'm 62 years old mommy doesn't like night shooting mm-hmm. mommy would turn down night of the iguana right because it it would be, you'd have to shoot, shoot it at night. night mommy does not like night shooting so for an old guy like Ben Johnson to, to have to turn it. around his life into a night schedule, challenging for an older person. I have very few memories of him. My friend Hart Bachner was in the movie. I love Hart Bachner. I'm and, a big Hart Bachner fan. Yeah, me too. He's I did a pilot with Hart Bachner, uh, really? which was going to be the parody of Indiana Jones. It was called Callahan, and it was the first pilot made by Marcy Carcy and Tom yeah, sure. Warner, Warner. Wow. when yeah, they left their executive position, and it was a parody of Indiana Jones. Hart was the swashbuckling museum director, and I'm the girl Friday who shows up for the interview, and from the interview, he goes, come on, and we go to Burma. We go to Rangoon. And now all of a sudden, I'm in a hat and a dress, and I'm running after him, and it's comedy. And there's that thing where I'm sure it's been in every movie. I, you'll know what movies where you have a puddle and you see people's feet running mm-hmm. into it. Mm-hmm. You have a wide shot, you see yeah, the puddle. puddle. People run, puddle. close up of the feet, boom, boom, they run. Uh, thing, feet, run, run, puddle, boom. My fancy little shoes, run, run, go straight through. Right. Underwater. Yeah. And we get, you know, kidnapped and it's my audition day. That was the pilot. It was me and Hart, me as the girl Friday, who every week was going to be like, you know. So Hart Bachner was in Terror Train. Right, but- Terror Train. So it's Hart, yes. So it's you, Hart Bachner, and David Copperfield. How was it working with David Copperfield? Do you have any memories? Um, no. I mean, he was an odd dude. Uh, it was nice. You know, for him, it was, he was there to be an actor in the movie. I don't think we hung out. Uh, you know what I mean? I just, I, Yeah, it's I, all night. You just basically go to just, sleep. Like, you just go to sleep. He was nice. Kenny, the killer. Well, Kenny the Killer was the beginning, you know, the big reveal was that it was his female magician's assistant assistant. who was trans and was ultimately the killer in the movie. Uh, Really what I remember? (laughs) What I really remember? There's another movie that did that, Freebie and the Bean. Okay, well, you're going to know all this because you're an encyclopedia, but what I remember... (laughs) was we did a scene in this train conducting office and I was a pirate and I wore big hoop earrings and I'm a girl and I've had my ear pulled through. It happens to women, if you can, you know. And I said to them in the fight, it would be great if he pulls through the hoop earring and like splits her ear open, like in the fight. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. But then it was all one take. And so how was I going to get bloody? So I go under like a bed or something. Uh-huh. And there was a 
pool of blood that we had left there. So when I went under there, you do your own makeup. I did my own out. makeup and then come out. And now it's all bloody. And you really think like, wow, he really ripped her ear apart. That I remember. I swear. I remember heart. I remember that it was nights. I remember it was cold AF. Mm-hmm. And I remember the blood in the fight scene. And I remember that they gave me a letter spike in that train mm-hmm. office. Yes. And I take it and I poke a guy and I actually, I thought I had blinded a stunt person. Oh, did you hit him? I hit him, but I hit him on the ins, like it, like I got him on the nose bone. And I think it's in the movie. I think my reaction was so good that it must be in the movie because realizing that I had actually done that stimulated a very specific response. I haven't seen the movie in a long time. You might have to like freeze frame it and send it to me. But I think my reaction is in the movie. Did you then go on from that to Halloween 2? I did. And Halloween 2... So when you say it was only three movies, it was five. Five movies does constitute a wave. Okay. (laughs) Really a small, small little wave. So Halloween 2 was being discussed again John decided not to direct it, which upset me. Yeah, that must have been strange. Like, who's Rick Rosenthal? Why is he directing it? They wrote it. Uh Uh-huh. Deborah was going to produce it. Uh Uh-huh. John was not going to direct it, but it took place immediately where the first movie left off. In the hospital. You know, it it literally takes place from the... The window, yeah, she's from the, gone. It's, I mean, she gets in an ambulance. Like, the, she's taken out of that house. And I felt I owed the people that loved the first yeah. movie. I mean, it's, it picks up immediately where the first movie left off. Literally. So I thought that I, I should do that, which I did in a bad wig, terrible wig. But I knew at the end of that that I should never do another one. Until you did it 20 years later. Is that why they decided that Halloween 3 would just be a completely different story? I have story? no idea what they decided with Halloween after that. What I knew is the great thing about being the daughter of legends is that I did understand that once you get known as something, it's very, very hard to try to do anything else. And I knew at the time that that was going to be, I had to make the decision. And by the way, I started making money. Yeah, of course. So you would think this would be the time to rake it in, to be like. But no, you switch, you go trading places. But no, but I switch and say, I'm not going to do any more horror movies. When did road games fit into this? Halloween, the fog. Prom Night Terror Train, Road Games, Halloween 2. It's interesting that of your filmography, Road Games, a lot of Americans don't know it as no. well. Um, Most people don't Quint- know. Quentin Tarantino calls it not only his favorite of the kind of exploitation films, but he thinks it's the best Australian film ever made. He puts it above Picnic at Hanging Rock, any of the Australian... Gallipoli? Gallipoli. He would take Road Games over Gallipoli. In I heartbeat. would not. I think it's an amazing film. Tell me about your memories of shooting. You have some great memories of shooting Road so, Games. Road Games written was... Written by the great Everett DeRoche, directed by Road Richard Franklin. Road Games was an Australian film. Stacey Keach is mm-hmm. playing the lead. They're with Canada mm-hmm. and Australia and maybe even other countries, maybe even Hungary. Who knows? 
there were tax incentives where you could bring a certain amount of people from America. So if you're going to make a movie in Canada, you're allowed to bring 2.5, whatever the algorithm is. So that's why there are a couple Americans who star in the movies and everybody else is Canadian. Right. Same thing happened in Road Games. Stacey Keach, and they brought me in, but then everybody else is Australian. But they brought me to Australia. But what I didn't know is that I replaced an actress, that there was an Australian actress who had been cast. And then when they cast me in, from America, I replaced her. And countries film groups are very small. The Australian film community was small, and obviously the crew was not happy that I was brought in. So I didn't had know Had they it. shot with this other actress? I don't know if they had shot with her, but she had been cast. Because I remember I arrived and I, there and was- you never, did you ever get the story of why you- No, no. <clears throat> I think I became available or something and they thought I had some name value and they just thought whatever. It's got a, a really interesting tone because it is a dark thriller, but the stuff with you and Stacey Keach where you're in the truck and you're hitchhiking and it's uh, driving around with them, it's really, really fun. But by the way, the character I'm playing is named Hitch. It was obviously Hitch, yeah. after Hitchcock. You know, he was a big fan of Hitchcock yes. and, of course, my mother. So, you know, it's not... It's not accidental. It's that not accidental that I was... The guy who directed Psycho 2 and right. became the biggest Hitchcock fanatic cast you in his Hitchcockian exactly. thriller. But I remember I replaced somebody that was difficult because I knew there was something up. It just, the vibe was, you know me, I'm pretty yeah. easygoing. And there was something. And I found out soon after I arrived that I had replaced somebody. I would say that was this your first or second time making a movie out of the country, probably out of the continent, out of the United States. Oh, first film. time yeah. ever. I mean, uh, Canada was Canada, but this was, I mean, I Australia. flew to Australia. 1980. Yeah, I mean, it was a deal. I remember we drove basically from Sydney to Perth. It's a road picture. We took over across the Nullarbor Plain. We actually just took over all these little roadside towns all mm -hmm. the way across the continent. And that's the movie. It was like a traveling roadshow. I don't know the game Snooker. I'd never heard of the game Snooker, but I could shoot pool a little bit because, you know, that's what so you that's do totally when you're hardest. young yeah. and you're stupid. Is you shoot pool at bars. And so I fashioned myself like I could shoot pool. Mm -hmm. And but snooker is a whole different. I've never played it. Okay, it's it's a very different game than sort of straight pool. Yeah. Anyway, you know you're in these roadside bars, and that's all there was: little motel rooms, a bar restaurant, every stop. And so you know there's snooker tables, and I started to learn how to play snooker, and I beat the gaffer, an Australian man, at snooker on one of our stops, and that did not go well for me. You know, you just don't do that. You should have just let the I should have just, just let him win. I should have let him you win, and I didn't. And I just remember he was not humiliated, but it was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's become apocryphal. I mean, I'm, who knows? All I remember is I kind of walked away going like, well, that was probably a stupid move on my part. Did you like the final film of Road Games? I haven't seen it in so long, I wouldn't even know if I liked it. it um, really I will tell up. you that Richard Franklin 
gave me a snooker cue with uh, my name on it uh, as my rap gift. Did Just you see FYI. His, his psycho too? Did anyone? Of course was that, not. Was that like verboten in the family? Why? Why would Eli? You? Okay, I'm just asking. Because you had Demi. You had, Demi. I had why to ask. I know Demi. the answer. Why would I see, see Psycho 2? Why would I, I see but I've any never, movie I've never, that you've made? I've never seen Hostel 3. I haven't. Right. You know, why would like, I why? see any of these movies, Eli? Okay. Why? I just thought. Uh, what could I possibly. I thought good, maybe you and your mom is like a joke. Be like, you know how you worked with Hitchcock and I worked with Richard Franklin? Wouldn't it be funny if we went to see this movie together? Because we both have a weird connection. Anyway, Virus, and this is the last one I'll touch you with. Virus kind of has a huge has a huge cult following. No, it does not. Oh, it does. No, it People does love. not. No, it does Do you, not. What are your memories of Virus? Can you talk about the plot? Can you tell me the plot of Virus? So, Virus was based on a comic book by Dark Horse mm -hmm. called Virus. And at the time, I was told that, you know, comic books to movies was going to be a thing. You think? You think they... Apparently. They, you the kids love those X-Men. This right, could be something. exactly. So it was a sort of random dark horse comic. I agreed to do it. Originally, it was going to be shot in L.A. And it's like getting somebody excited about something. Ooh, shooting in L.A., some dough. Mm -hmm. um, Donald Sutherland was in it. Mm -hmm. And then I found out it was going to be shot in Wilmington. Now, Wilmington's a lovely place. I've made two Halloween movies there. I'm about to go make a third one. But I also had a baby at the time. I had an infant who was 10 months old and a daughter at home and a husband. And so all of a sudden, making virus was problematic for me because I had to leave my home with my baby and a babysitter. Mm -hmm. But I went and made it. So virus is just bad. It's just bad. Now, here's the thing. John Bruno was the special effects supervisor on the Terminator movies. And John Bruno was going to be the director. Mm -hmm. Now, you would think that someone who has all that special effects background, which is, just wasn't the case. He's a lovely guy, very talented special effects man, very talented. But he's not a movie director. And certainly, this was a movie that needed someone who could really run a big ship. The scale of it was enormous. The production designer was Mylan Chen. She built these beautiful sets, these gorgeous, huge scale interior holds of this battleship with tracks running through it, which were going to house the big Goliath special effects robot that they were going to bring in, and every set had these tracks so that you could put this hulking thing running it through these sets. Mm -hmm. They were built. They were enormous and huge and gorgeous work. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. It's a tugboat crew, so a Russian spaceship. Some electrical thing gets into them, and it gets beamed back to a big battleship mm -hmm. in America, and it fries everybody. Mm -hmm. So now a tugboat crew, me. Led by the scrappy Kit Foster. Can you talk about your leading a tugboat crew? How was that? Did you prepare? Me as the navigator on a tugboat crew. Donald Sutherland as the captain. Billy Baldwin as the engineer. Our tugboat gets hit by a rogue wave mm -hmm. in a storm. And now we're derelict in the middle of the ocean. And we come across... 
the now empty big battleship. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, we're drowning, but we can salvage this because mm -hmm. we've lost our tugboat. Right. Which thing happens in a big storm. So we take over this ship. But little do we know that on this ship are these energy, energy bots, alien, bots. alien bots that are going to take over the thing. Is there a moment where you're like, I left my child for this, or did you read no, it no, thinking my child, it was great? You or, mean my daughter. You're right. Yeah. Or were you reading the comic going, oh, this could actually be really cool? At, at a certain you point, do you think? I did believe that there was the possibility. I don't um, think anybody sets out to make a movie that doesn't quite work. No, Every, no, no, no. And believes. I'm telling you that there were elements about it that were spectacular. By the way, your performance is quite good. Oh, shut Dealing up, with Eli. trauma. No, Just it's true. Stop She's, it now. Just stop when it. When you punch Donald Sutherland stop in the it. face, how is it? You, you've Stop got to it. punch Donald Sutherland. Not I a lot would of, love to punch Donald Sutherland in, in the face and, again if again, I could. If you had the chance. Um, it is a terrible movie, but. But you're held hostage and tortured by a robot. I will tell you that I was mutinous on this movie. I've not been mutinous before. I was mutinous because I understood that we were in trouble from the beginning. And. There, oh, you the, knew it. You could see it. I could see it. It was just was too it just, big. Just it was too, it was so such enormous. Such a big idea. And, and it just didn't feel like we were getting it mm -hmm. done. And it was going to be a disaster. The day that Goliath showed up to be with 20 technicians to put this thing on the tracks that's going to like maraud its way through all these beautiful sets that have been built. And we're all there pumped up guns, you know, rifles. We all like rush into this hallway and the doors open at the end of it. Bright light. You know, we've got our guns. We're shooting. And this thing starts moving into the set. And it takes one step. And then another step. And then. Yeah. I'm scared right now. I'm terrified. Yeah. Fall. And oh, that was it. it, it that Just was still it. Still out of your seat. The whole so, thing was done. One and done. We were told, you know, there's Goliath's no, no coming. Twenty people. The entire movie is CGI now. The only way they release the movie is they just CGI the rest of the movie. I am telling you that this beautiful machine took two steps and tipped over. over, and that was it for the entire shoot. It never worked. The little so like, robots were, were, are spectacular, it, by the way. was there a moment where you're like, this could be like Jaws, because that shark no, didn't work it either. No, it was never going to be Jaws. It was terrible from day one, and it was a long shoot. Oh. And that is very, very challenging. The little robots, spectacular. These little bots, very cool. So there were some special effects that were spectacular. Really cool. But, oh my God, it's bad. And by the way, I'm not a special effects person. I understand shit breaks. Yeah. I understand your best intention is it's going to work and then it doesn't. Yeah. So we're on a tugboat. Mm -hmm. We're going to sink the tugboat. That's, you know, there's a big sequence where the tugboat sinks. So while it's tethered, we're on the battleship. We have one guy on the tugboat and the electrical evil people figure out a way to drop the anchor from the battleship into the tugboat. the tugboat. So now the tugboat, now you have stunt people flying, they're jumping off. It's a big scene. Mm -hmm. And the tugboat's going to sink. And they rigged it so that the tugboat could sink. And then they had air buoy things in there and mm -hmm. they'll raise it back up, do it again, do it again. Because it was a big sequence. Sure. Again, 
big stunt. We're all on the thing. We're going to jump into the water. You know, it's all happening. Thing, we're going to sink, sinking the tugboat. You know, 15 cameras, very big deal. Stunt people, thing, they drop the thing, boom, they jump, they thing, an explosion, thing, the tugboat sinks. They get it, everybody's safe. There's, woo, great, so great, crazy. Okay, we need to get it again from the other angle now, but great job. Okay, bring up the tugboat. Bring up the tugboat. Let's go, bring up the tugboat. Never came up again. That was the end of it. There are two other things I have to share with you. One, Goliath is an energy source. Mm -hmm. Goliath could rip through the wall of a ship and does many places, rips through it. It, 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 it could consume a ship. So how do you ever deal with that? There is a sequence in the movie where I got a gun and my yellow rain jacket and I'm looking for Goliath and I go into this beautiful set with some stairs, you know, you open a hold. Mm -hmm. Now you go in, look around and I walk down the stairs looking for Goliath and then I start moving across and then as soon as I pass, Goliath's red eyes, he was hiding under, he was the, hiding stairs. under the stairs. Now, <laughs> like, this is supposed to be this energy source. They could tear through anything. They could just eat the whole fucking ship. And he's hiding under the stairs. I just, it was just. Did you say anything to Drake? I don't even. I can't even. I can't. Are you just like, why would you, I as an don't actor, even. I can't even. Like I can't. I can't. I can't. I, I, mm -hmm. Here's the other thing I need to tell you. As you know, we've just finished the film and you wardrobes people with intentions. Mm -hmm. My wardrobe in the movie was a pair of brown pants, purple t-shirt, and a yellow rain slicker. And I have attached to my wrist a flashlight. I never used the flashlight the entire movie. But the reason I had to have the flashlight is there is a sequence where I fall into a vat of oil, where all the dead bodies of all the Russian sailors are now floating. Mm -hmm. So there are all these bloated corpses in this oil tank that I am now in. The only reason that I had the flashlight was because, yeah, as I've become yeah, very famous... For lighting the shot. Uh, you are with a genius. My flashlight. Is that where you learned it? Well, I must have, darling. That's because, amazing. But I ran around with this fucking thing attached to my wrist, banging into me. And you were not allowed to take it off. You couldn't just only acquire it for that one. because time. we knew down the line I'm going to fall into this vat of oil where there's no light... And the only light is going to be from my fucking torch. I mean, that talk about another scene. That was this real set. That it was amazing. These beautiful sets. They heated water and oil. It was humongous. How long were you under it for? You had to hold your breath. No, no, I'm like swimming. Yeah. Oh, there's. You obviously have not watched it recently. I can't, like I can't. I I'm feel swimming, like my you're and who's in it. there with me? Hmm, maybe Goliath. Yeah. I mean, it's just. Terrible. I got an action figure from the movie Virus, Kelly Foster, 
Um, the best part of it is that my ass goes forward. You can spin it so I can be ass first, which is kind of fun. Do you know how I met John Landis? No. Do you know how I ended up in Trading Places? No. John Landis directed a short, a documentary short, called mm. Coming Soon, about 50s horror film trailers. Okay. And he needed somebody to narrate it. So who did John Landis hire? He hired me. Okay. So I went to Universal on the back lot, and I do the on-camera narration. In 19... And that's when I first met John. I had never met him. He'd never hired me for anything. And obviously from that day or two or three of me narrating, and you can see those on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's me narrating. It's called Coming Soon. And I believe the term Scream Queen may be in those movies. But that's when I met John Landis, which is why he hired me to be in Trading Places. Because obviously he spent three days with me and figured out that you I was... funny. Well, whatever. Um, what do you, what did you think of the term at the time? What do you think of it now? Obviously, being in the television show, you made fun of it. Did it bother you at that moment? Um, it only, it probably only bothered me right at the end because that was the whole idea that I needed to do something else. And by the way, I went from doing Halloween 2, which I did as a loyalty to the fans. And the next, I said to my people, I am not going to do any more of these movies. I'm done. And I met the producers of the Dorothy Stratton story, an NBC movie of the week of the life of Dorothy, of Dorothy Stratton. Stratton. I met them the next day. And I walked in and said, you don't want to hire me for this. I look nothing like this woman. I'm happy to meet you people. And they hired me. I told them not to. So within a day, let's say a week, within a week from saying I'm no longer doing horror films, I was starring in a TV movie playing a Playboy playmate who was killed by her husband. And then I did a movie called Love Letters that Amy Jones mm -hmm. wrote. And with... Amy um, Holden Jones? Yeah. Who did Slumber Party Massacre. Yeah. And she wrote a story about an illicit love affair between a young woman and a married man okay. called My Love Letters. Oh, it was actually called, it love was letters. written as My Love Letters. It was released as Love Letters with James Keach. Mm -hmm. So I work with Stacy. Now I'm shtupping James. James on camera. And it was during that that I auditioned for Trading Places. Incredible. Have you seen One Day Since Yesterday? It's a documentary on Bogdanovich and that whole period and the making of They All Laughed and the subsequent months after. Hmm. And his talks about Fosse and Star 8, it shows him and Dorothy Stratton calling camps in it, everyone talking about mm -hmm. they all laughed and well, what and it was like him editing that movie. What's weird is we that I'm friends with Marielle Hemingway. We are both born on the same day. Mm -hmm. We used to live 300 yards from each other in the mountains and we got married on the same day. And we both played Dorothy Stratton. It's so interesting. And we were both the daughters of, yeah, of, course. of you know, sort of legends. So well, you're a legend. Thank you, Jamie. Well, you're it's really fun. a pleasure. I, you know me. I could talk to you all day long. 
As could I. I know. But I'll, you know, another you day, we we'll got a have, big day. Hey, we we'll have other movies to talk about season four. That was Jamie Lee Curtis. Join us next time when our guest will be Kate Blanchett. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Zayenga. Produced by Kurt Zayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazes, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. <laughs> <laughs>